As Tom was telling the children, he likes a story, and everyone likes a story. Those of you who are teachers, those of you who are parents, will know how much children like stories. But we all like stories. And I sometimes think, where would the film industry or the television industry or the publishing industry be without stories? I think they form the bulk of our entertainment. And you will know of stories that you like and that you're fond of. And stories are entertaining. But stories can also be instructive. They can teach profound truth. And such were the stories that Jesus told. We call them the parables. Jesus made parables very much his own. There were other teachers who used parables as a teaching method. There are parables in the Old Testament. We're going to look at one. But Jesus really was the master storyteller in the parables that he told. Some people have said that some of his parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son, these are amongst the finest short stories ever told. He was a master storyteller. And there are 41 parables. You'll find them across Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Interestingly, there are none in John's Gospel. Now, Charlie Curry, who was preaching to us last week, introduced one of the parables, and he said of parables quite correctly that there's a certain level at which you can understand the parable pretty easily, but there's a deeper level, there's a more profound level, at which parables can be very challenging and very mysterious and indeed quite paradoxical. And we're going to see that in the parable that we're looking at today, the parable of the tenants. If you want to follow it, it's in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, and we're looking from verse 33, and I shall be making some comments on the different verses. Before we do that, just let me set the context for what we've been doing over these last few Sunday mornings. We've been looking at two chapters in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 21 and 22. And the theme of this series of sermons is the upside-down kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. The upside-down, the topsy-turvy, the revolutionary kingdom of which Jesus is king and about which he teaches. That's the theme of this series of sermons. And we see the theme lived out in the texts that we've been looking at. Jesus is in the last week of his life the last week before his crucifixion, the week that we'll be marking and celebrating, not this coming week, but the week following, what we call Holy Week. And a very dramatic week it is. And he's in Jerusalem. He's come to the great city of Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And Jerusalem is overwhelmed with visitors and with pilgrims, Thirty years after the events that are recorded at Easter, the first Easter, there's a little bit of historical information that someone worked out there were 250,000 lambs slaughtered in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And if you remember the guidance given in the Old Testament that you needed 10 people for a lamb, I'm sure your maths is up to working out that there are 
two and a half million people crowded into Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. And this is the context for this last week of Jesus' life. And we see in a number of remarkable events, and we see in a a number of remarkable passages of teaching, who this Jesus is and what he has come to do. He rides into Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem at the beginning of the week on a donkey, fulfilling the Old Testament prophet that the king, the king of the Jews, was to come riding on a donkey, humble, gentle, a sign not of military success and conquest, but a sign of service and a sign of sacrifice. That's the events of Palm Sunday. Then Jesus cleanses the temple in a remarkably dramatic action. He drives out the money changers and the traders from the temple. My father's house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. And then he curses the fig tree. We looked at that extraordinary passage. The fig tree that's fruitless. Jesus curses it. And these are very provocative events, and people are asking, who is this? Who is this man who has come to do these things? By what authority is he doing these things? Now remember, most of Jesus' ministry was in the area of Galilee, the country area where he was um, brought up. It was his home. And he comes to Jerusalem. Many would not know him except perhaps by reputation. His disciples knew him. His immediate followers knew him. But many didn't know who he was. And they're asking the question, who is this? Who is doing these things? What is this man? It's a very important question for us, who we say Jesus is. We've all heard of Jesus. We've all heard of Jesus. Who is he? Who do we think he was? Who do we think he is? It's almost the most important question we can ask ourselves. And how do we respond? What's our response? What's our decision? What's our choice for what to believe? And this is the question that they're asking in this last week of his life. People who are hearing him, people who are seeing him. Who is this man? And by what authority does he do these things? And so we come to the remarkable series of three parables that Jesus teaches in this last week. We looked at one parable last Sunday, the parable of the two sons. Tom was rehearsing that again with the children. Next week we're going to look at the parable of the wedding banquet. And today we have the parable of the tenants. Like all of Jesus' parables, this is a very simple story. At one level, it's very easy to understand. Let me digress for a moment. I went uh, this week to hear a talk given by a man called Jeff or Jeffrey Bayliss. Some of you may know him. He's the team rector at Cowley Parish. And he's come recently to Oxford to take up that post. So he's a neighbor to us here at Magdalen Road Church here in East Oxford. And Jeff Bayliss is just completing a PhD. And the theme of his PhD is communicating in the church. Now, of course, he's speaking from an Anglican context, the Church of England. But I think what he is concluding from his research What he's seeking to teach through his PhD has something for all the churches as as it happens. Communication is a tremendous 
challenge. And as I was sitting listening to him, it seemed to me if I was to put into one sentence what the thrust of his PhD is, it's this. For most people who come to church, any church, most people who come to church are struggling to understand some of the language that's used in church. Let me say that again, because I think it's quite profound. For most people who come to church, they are struggling over the language that's being used in church. Now, Jeff Bayliss is looking at the Anglican liturgy, but you can apply that to the whole of worship, to prayers, to reading, to the songs and hymns that we sing, and to what the preacher is saying. He's, he's really suggesting that the church so often and unwittingly raises barriers between people because they don't really understand the words and the language that's often used in church. Now, those of you who've done any theological training or studied Christian theology in any degree will know that there is jargon there, there are technical words there, just as there are in any, in any profession or any practice Words like pneumatology, eschatology, soteriology, justification, sanctification. You may say, what do these words mean? I wouldn't blame you for asking that question. Now, all of you in your own jobs and professions have your jargon and you have your technical language. We're all challenged with communicating what we do to others who aren't perhaps versed in these things. But the words that Jeff Bayliss was actually pointing out as barriers were much simpler. Almighty. What does that mean? Righteous. What do you think righteous means? Holy. Merciful. And yes, one of the words that he has highlighted in his PhD is the word kingdom. What does this word mean? kingdom mean? And you know, when I was sitting listening to him, I was really astonished and challenged. I spent a lot of my life up front in a church, and I guess people are too polite to come up afterwards and say, pastor, minister, preacher, I just didn't understand what you were saying. It hardly ever happens. Perhaps it should. I was really challenged by this, that most people who come to a church are struggling with some of the things that are said in that church service. Now, when we come to the parables of Jesus, he is a master storyteller, and he is very clear and very simple and very straightforward in the words, in the language, in the ideas, in the images that he is using. And we see that here. Let's take the story again and just see how simple it is. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. 
and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I think that's a very simple story. And I think it's a story that at one level it's very easy for us all to understand. And those who heard Jesus telling this story for the first time would know very well what he was referring to. There are many references in the Old Testament to the vineyard being a model of the people of God, of Israel. Israel, the chosen people, the Jews, were God's vineyard. That would have been something that everyone recognized and appreciated. I said I was going to make reference to a, an Old Testament parable, and I'm going to do that now, and it's the famous parable in Isaiah chapter 5 of the vineyard. And if you listen as I read it, you'll see the similarity and the parallel with the uh, parable of the, two, uh, of, the, of the tenants. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Absolutely marvelous story, marvelous parable of judgment on the vineyard of God, on God's own people. And so those who listened to Jesus tell this parable would know very well that the, the landowner is God. The vineyard are the people of God, Israel. The farmers, the tenants who have been given the vineyard to, to manage, they are the religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. And the servants, whom the landowner repeatedly sends, the servants are the prophets. Easy to follow, easy to understand. And then Jesus introduces a new element. Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Who is the son? Of course, it's Jesus. This is a quite explicit confession by Jesus of his divine sonship. 
And so this paradox in the parable. At one level, so easy to understand, we can listen to the words, we can enjoy the story. But it's meaning, it's thrust, it's significance. Do we really see that? Do we really see that? I think the parable has two particular messages. It is a clear condemnation of the religious leadership. That seems to me to go without saying. They have failed, and they have failed repeatedly, and they have failed totally. They have not been the people that God made them to be and called them to be. They have not produced fruit, the fruit that he expected and the fruit that he wanted and the fruit for which they were made. They have failed and they are here condemned. The key verse, verse 43, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. It's the same message or similar message to the parable of the two sons, the parable of the wedding banquet we'll look at next week, that the long expected, the long foretold Messiah, the savior of the Jews, the Christ, he comes, but he is rejected in this upside down, this topsy-turvy, this revolutionary kingdom. The king himself is initially rejected. What a radical transformation there is here in the teaching of Jesus. So many common assumptions, common presuppositions, so many common practices are turned on their head in this new kingdom of which he is the king. We heard last week that the kingdom of God is to be open to sinners, to tax collectors, to prostitutes. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is open to you. And it's open to me. And that's the good news. It's a kind of counterculture. It's an alternative society. It's something profoundly challenging and transforming. And Jesus is the king. And he introduces this kingdom. And he teaches about the kingdom. When I was preparing this sermon during the week, I was putting some notes onto my iPad using Siri. Some of you will know of the software Siri, which allows you to dictate, and the words come up on the screen. And I had this phrase, because it's a very important phrase, and we find it in other parts of the New Testament, tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. But when I looked at my screen, it said this. Tax collectors and prostitutes and cinemas. <laughs> Maybe that's something for our group, real life, to reflect on. But it reminds me that I had a, an assistant in Edinburgh some years ago, Donald, who was with me for a year. And Donald was married to Hazel. It's the only other person I've known to be married to a Hazel. He was with me for a year. Now, Hazel had as her background the Free Church. And uh, those of you who know about the Free Church in Scotland will know that it's, it's very strict, it's very conservative, theologically, 
and socially, and this was Hazel's upbringing, and I have a huge regard for the Free Church, let me say that immediately. Well, now, while Donald was with me in the year that he was with me in Edinburgh, the film Train Spotting came out. Now, I don't know if some of you have seen the film Train Spotting. It's based on the novel by Irving Welsh. It's really about the drug culture in Edinburgh, east, east end of Edinburgh. It was a film that really opened up what the drug culture was really like for the first time. And very interestingly, many of the scenes in the film Train Spotting are set uh, in what was my parish in the east end of Edinburgh. So I said to Donald, Donald, we need to go and see that film because this is our parish, this is our community, this is the uh, people that we're trying to minister to. We really ought to, to go and see it. So we went to see it. And it's pretty grim viewing, as perhaps some of you will know. So when we came out of the cinema, I said to Donald, I said, Donald, what do you make of that? He said, oh, it was awful. But he said, please don't tell Hazel. And I said, I'm sorry? He said, please don't tell Hazel. She doesn't approve of the cinema. So there you are. The kingdom of heaven is going to be open to tax collectors, to prostitutes, and to people who go to the cinema. <laughs> the parable is a clear condemnation of the religious leadership of its day. But the second message I take out is it's also a clear prediction of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Today is Passion Sunday. We're drawing near to Easter. The suffering and the death and the cross of Jesus Christ are here in this parable, in this story predicted. And as I've already said, there's a clear confession by Jesus that he is the Son of God. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then the quotation, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the foundation stone. He confesses himself to be the foundation stone, the capstone, the keystone, the arch stone that binds the building together, the foundation stone indeed, upon whom we stand. And there's a lovely old hymn, some of you will know it. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Everybody loves a story and this is a good story. It's a it's a wonderful parable, powerful story conveying truth, truth of the most profound, profound and important and significant kind. It's a story that's fulfilled. Yes, those first Christians were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. Paul was a Jew. The early believers were Jews. But so quickly as we know from Acts, the uh, Christian faith goes out from Judaism out into the Gentile world. And this parable is fulfilled. <coughs> Briefly, two further observations. It seems to me in the story that we see the patience of God. God is patient. 
Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son. He'd sent them servants upon servants upon servants, the prophets. They'd abused them. They'd thrown them out. They'd killed some. God, in his patience, in his love, says, I will send them my son. They will respect my son. There's still hope. There's still time. There's still time to change. There was still time for the leaders to repent and turn and yield and be faithful and obedient. They will respect my son. There was one last chance for them. But as we know, Jesus suffered and was put to death. But God is patient. And if the gospel is about anything, it's about a second chance. God waits. He looks to us. He sent us his son. What are we going to decide to do? Is there someone here perhaps today who's still waiting to make up their mind, make that decision, make that choice? God is patient. There's hope. There's time. But of course we have to decide. And then the second thing that I take out of this also is the awfulness of human sin. These, these tenants of the vineyard, they're not just selfish and greedy and corrupt, though they are. There's an evil here. There's a poison here. A hostility to God himself. And friends, if we're honest and if we are realistic, we know that we share in that evil ourselves. We cry out with Paul, don't we? The good things we want to do, the good things we want to do, we don't do. We don't do. And the very things we set our faces against doing, those are the things that we end up doing. Who will save us, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ? We share in the sin that brought death into the world. And so our passage ends, verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because of the people held that he was a prophet. Now there, in those two verses, they knew that he was talking about them. They knew his message. They clearly understood it, but they looked for a way to arrest him. This is the paradox of the parable. This is the mystery of the parable. It's so easy to understand what it means, but they don't do it. They don't obey it. They don't subject themselves to its teaching and its truth. They don't turn and find their salvation. God is patient. Human sin is awful. We have a savior. Are we going to accept him? And I want to end with this. Exactly 20 years ago today, 13th of March, in Scotland there took place a, an event that was so awful as it has seared itself onto the memories of all who do indeed remember it. It was the massacre at Dunblane when a man walked into a primary school and would you believe it was a gymnasium just exactly where we are here today Primary one was having its gym class. He shot 16 children dead 
and their class teacher, and he injured 15 others. He then turned the gun on himself. One of those events that, in my life, I always remember what I was doing when I heard about it. One or two of the older ones might recall this as well. I was driving in my car in central Scotland about some business, and almost 20 years to the minute, because it was the 12 o'clock news that I switched on in the car, and reports were coming in of an incident at a school at Dunblane in Perthshire, where some children had been shot. It remains a, an event which cannot be explained. Even all these years later, there's so much that's just simply inexplicable about it. It was such a story, it went round the entire world. And here we are today, 20 years later, remembering the anniversary. On the evening of that day, the headmaster, Ronald Taylor, went on television to give a press conference. He was a young man, totally overwhelmed. During the course of the event, since he'd got out of bed in the morning, who could possibly have foreseen what was to happen to him and his school? And he said this. And these were words that again went round the world. He said, today, a great evil has come to my school. Today, a great evil has come to my school. And it was an appalling evil. All the children were five years old. Some of you have children five years old. Shot in a gymnasium that probably wasn't much different to the one that we're in. Now, there are other evils, other great evils we know. We see them on television, we read about them in our newspapers. But my friends, don't think we have nothing to do with that. On a much lesser scale, perhaps we too can give an opportunity to evil and to sin in our lives. The devil prowls around like a lion, seeing whom he may devour. Don't think that sin and evil is just to do with the, the child abusers or the child murderers or the terrorists or the drug addicts. It's all of us. We're all caught up in it. The good that we would do, we don't do. The very things we set out not to do, we end up doing. And I find myself asking this question, what is big enough to deal with an evil of this kind? What is big enough to deal with evil and human sinfulness? And I can only come back to one answer. It's the love of God as we see it expressed in the cross of Christ. That is the one thing that seems to me to release into the world a truth, a life, a power that can be transforming. It can be forgiving and healing and renewing. It's the one hope that we have that the world can be different. And that evil and sin and death and the devil can be overcome. These events that we're going to remember and celebrate just in these next few days. That's the one thing that I come back to that's big enough to deal with so much that faces us in our world and that faces us individually. In my church in Edinburgh, as you came in through the front doors, there was a memorial to the First Minister and there was a text from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, I am resolved to know nothing while I was with you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We'd have another picture of it today in the baptism of Tom. Paul tells us that when Tom is baptized, when anyone is baptized going into the water, they are united with Christ in his death. 
and then coming up out of the water, a very visual, a very theatrical truth demonstrated before our eyes. To come out of the water is to be united with Christ in his resurrection. A choice that Tom has made, a choice that many of us make, but a choice that we're all faced to make again and again. And what is our choice? What is our decision? Are we going to accept Christ? Or like the tenants in the parable, are we going to reject him? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, who is Jesus? Who does these things? Who teaches these things? Who is Jesus? We confess him to be your divine son who went to death on the cross for our sakes and our salvation. And in rising again, offers to us, to each one of us, eternal life. Life that starts now and is healing and transforming. And we will know it in all its fullness in the life to come. Help us to take this word into our hearts and our own choices and our own decisions to decide for Jesus and to make him our saviour and our Lord and our friend. Amen.